right, welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Ron Carucci. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, turning around to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. He has worked in more than 25 countries on four continents. He is also the best-selling author of eight books, including the recent Amazon number one, Rising to Power. He is a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes and has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, and Business Week. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Tiffany, such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, as always, we're going to start the day out with what I call bullish and bearish, hopefully not too painful, but I'm going to ask a couple of questions and uh, looking for a bullish and bearish answer. Bullish is you're really for it. Bearish is you're against it. And in full transparency, rarely do I get that basic of an answer, but we're going to give it a shot again today. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. So the first one, virtual reality being used for leadership training. Bearish. Hmm. I wouldn't have expected you to say that. I'm going to dig into that in a second. So hold that thought. All right. The next one, millennials will make better leaders than boomers. Ah. Uh, Bullish most of the time. All right. Bullish most of the time. <laughs> There's the gray. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll dig into that one. And then the last one is a, a little more fun, but I think near and dear to your heart for some new research you have coming out. But robots will be honest. <laughs> uh, uh, bullish. <laughs> bullish. All right. I got you on that one. I love it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go right down because I think that that's, um, I'm going to start with that virtual reality and leadership training. Uh, you were, you were pretty quick on bearish. So what, what made you, what made you jump into that? So le leadership is a contact sport. It's about how you, it's messy. It's not, you know, we all want to believe that there's a formula out there that says, here's the six secrets or the five steps or the four you know laws, but leadership is messy. And if you do it well, you're going to suffer. Um, and it's sacrificial and it, it, there's nothing virtual about it. And, um, you know, role playing with a pair of goggles is probably not going to bring you to a greater de degree of depth of knowing who you are and how others experience you. And at the end of the day, leadership is about understanding how you're being metabolized by those around you and how it is that your intentions and your impact are matching or not. And there's just no way a pair of goggles is going to tell you that. Well, and you, you've even shared uh, in one of your HBR articles that like $90 billion is spent in training, yet the results are kind of mixed at best. And uh, the reason I asked the question, right, is it is it different mediums for training that may help, you know, or is it just really about the fact that people have to be willing to train and that kind of, as you said, that kind of combat sport aspect of it just has to happen, you know, day after day after day? Well, I think you know, the, the point, sort of the frustration behind that article for me was how often we misapply training as an intervention or a solution to a problem. 
Um, training is a great solution when the problem is a lack of a skill or the lack of a knowledge body that you need to improve. But too often, it's a, it's a silver bullet. People use it as a panacea to try and solve all kinds of problems. Um, you know, the example I used was um, a, a company coming to me and saying, hey, we, we, need an, we need a workshop on entrepreneurialism because our decision makers are too slow, uh, too many you know, people asking their bosses permission, and we're, and, we're, and we're not getting to things done fast enough. And so we need people to learn how to be entrepreneurs. So can you come teach a, teach a workshop on that for all of our managers? Yeah, but I think the critical part in that is that people have to actually be willing to learn, right? Regardless of how you set up an opportunity for them to have that kind of experience. The, the, well, the problem wasn't learning at all, right? The problem was no matter how much training we gave people, it wouldn't have changed anything. And here's why. When we dug a little deeper in the organization, there were layers and layers of approval processes. All the decision pathways and knowledge was aggregated at the top. Um uh, people didn't even understand as part of their role, they were expected to make decisions, nor was the information needed to make those decisions available to those who they wanted to have it. These were all systemic factors in the design of the organization that if they weren't going to change, no amount of new skill or knowledge was going to change behavior. And unless they were willing to change the systemic factors uh, of the behavior of the organization and the way it was governed and the way information was accessed and the way people's roles were designed, um, imparting new skill was just going to frustrate people and send them away, making management look more out of touch with reality because they were being asked to do something. There was no way their role was going to allow them to do. And one of your you know, kind of core tenets is around this creating and learning influence, you know, as kind of in, I'm going to say in air quotes, right, power. And so influencing from the top, as you've just described, you know, through the middle of the organization to an individual contributor takes really well thought out sort of communication plans to make sure, as you just said, like, why are they doing it? What's the impact? What's their role? Like people want to understand why they're being led a certain way. And so what, what can you tell, you know, sort of share with the listeners that, you know, if you're in a position where you have to influence, I guess, well, let me ask that differently. Maybe start with how do you define that influence and power and then secondarily answer that question. So we, um, we conducted a 10-year longitudinal study that included more than 2,700 leaders to understand why it was that those that reached those positions of influence, more than half of them failed within the first 18 months. And that's not a new statistic. And of course, the recruiters all love it because it's an annuity for them. But beyond that, you know, why was there so much carnage behind people who were seen as otherwise very promising and very you know, full of great potential suddenly becoming disasters when they reached broader purchase? So we wanted to go find out. And what we discovered, um, among many things, were the what it was the other 50% were doing that were actually helping them stick the landing and causing them to thrive in roles of greater influence. When it comes to power, one of the greatest surprises we discovered was that um, the greatest abuse of power uh, in leadership wasn't for self-interest or a moral gain or um, self-interest. It was uh, the abandonment of power. People too afraid to use it and too uncomfortable with it and setting it aside uh, and, and it, and the, you know, doling out way too many yeses, purchasing popularity with um, by cozying favor with people and doing things that would people believed would sort of be less unsettling. When the reality is when you're in a position of leadership, your ability, your job is to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. Your job is to narrow the focus of the organization on the priorities it can succeed at, even that when that means foregoing great ideas. 
And for too many leaders, that's uncomfortable. But the leaders that were sticking the landing uh, and the leaders that were thriving uh, in their in their positions of influence were those who could make hard calls, who could make hard choices. Um, they could um, they didn't they weren't afraid to say no. Um, and they weren't uh, unable to explain it either. They didn't just dole out random no's and capriciously choose things. They they understood what was what the greater good of the organization was and could you know could in, make the investments and resources accordingly. They could also build great connections. These were the leaders that everybody wanted to work for. They were the leaders that up, down, sideways had phenomenal relationships of trust and authenticity, everybody wanted to work for them. But the real key difference was they prioritized their connections based on those they could help. They focused on the ones they could help succeed, not the ones they could get something from. They were also leaders who built bridges. They could they had, they had could create breadth. They knew that the seams of the organization were naturally fragmented and they could build bridges across the moats between marketing and sales, between sales and operations, between R&D and innovation. They knew how to bring people together. And lastly, uh, and maybe most importantly, they were contextually intelligent. They could read the tea leaves. They understood why things were being done, and they understood that they had to be curious about why those things were done before they made change. And they weren't—they knew that they had as much to, to adapt in themselves as they had to change around them. They, could, they didn't just come in and slap on their answers or impose their knowledge without, um, without being first thoughtful about why. So choice context, breadth, and connection. Those were the four things that the the most successful leaders in our study did consistently to be very influential. And I think those are capabilities that all of us can have, whether you're an individual contributor, a salesperson, a marketer, somebody influencing from the middle. Those are four muscles that are proven that if you can adopt them, um, you can have great impact. Well, you know, I, I, I've given a there's a speech that I give, a presentation I give called Building Your Confidence Muscle. And I think that, you know, what I've learned over time through my career is that it really is a muscle. And you said it, like these are the four sort of muscles that you have to exercise and start to work. But, you know, there's failures along the way. Like, you know, you'll, for me, like you get up on stage and it's just not good, or it's just not a great podcast, or it's not a great meeting. I mean, it's just, it's not always great. And so I think that there's lots of things though that, as you are um, starting to flex the power influence, you really have to work on the confidence because there's a fine line between uh, sort of earning the right to make decisions and, and wield some level of power, you know, if you will, based on title and responsibility. And there's others where it's just the sort of top down kind of the carrot and the stick. Would you agree? I would agree. And I would agree the latter form of power, just purely carrot and stick, is usually short-lived, especially in today's workplace. And certainly with millennials and even now with Gen Zs, um, people will people will withhold or extend their trust to you or assume your credibility based on other factors. Um, I think we isolated three origins of power in, in the information we have and how we use it to change perspectives in our relationships and how we help others become even greater versions of themselves. And in, in our positions, um, the real key there is not just carrots and sticks and rewards and punishments, but it's justice, right? And so how do, are we using our positions of influence and power when we have formal authority to right wrongs, to where there are places of inequity or places of unfairness in our organizations? Are we actually processes that allocate resources misappropriately? decision processes that don't don't include the right voices. Are we making those just? Um, so those are the basis of which people are ultimately going to decide they want to follow us or not. 
the, the coercion of uh, you could hurt me if I don't, or you can give me something I might want if I do, it's very transactional and very short-lived and nobody trusts it. People will leverage it if, if that's all that's available to them in a leader, they'll, they'll exploit it, but it's usually very short-lived. And if a crisis hits, you're, you're in trouble. Well, so now let's kind of pivot to the next bullish and bearish, because I, I thought that was interesting too. You, you, you hesitated for a second, but the millennials will make better leaders than boomers, right? Thinking about how millennials learned differently uh, and how they approach power, leadership, collaboration, you know, those kinds of things feel different to me. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think as you look across all the work you've done. Are you starting to see something unique in that age group? Because I'm not a big fan of sort of swathing all millennials behave this way at all. But, you know, sort of patterns you're starting to see come out of that generation that are different than what we've seen in the other generations. I think for sure there's some differences. Back in 2006, I wrote a book called Leadership Divided, and it was about millennials before we actually called them that. It was their, they were they were just appearing on the scene the way Gen Z is today, and we were already seeing this these turbulence with them. And so I did a lot of research to understand that uh, because I was I like to you, your point, Tiffany. I was troubled by the label. I was troubled that we were trying to sort of use birth order as a way to segment a demographic in the workplace when the issue wasn't the label or the year you were born. The issue was a relationship one. Because um, the issue isn't, you know, when are you an emerging leader or an incumbent leader? The issue is, which are you when? There are days that I'm the emerging leader, right? So it depends on what the context is. But this was a generation that was told from the very outset of their lives, you will change the world. They are, you know, statistically proven to be the most social, one of the most socially justice-minded generations in history. Um, they only have ever known technology. They've only ever known uh, knowledge acquisition. N now they were also told everybody gets a trophy. That might not have been the best thing we told them. Um, I think we're hurting Gen Z. I think we've sent Gen Z a very painful message of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, right? And so we're, I agree. we're setting them up to fail <laughs> very painfully. But the, but what I where I think the great potential in the millennials lie as they reach their forties, you know, so in the next ten years or so, is their altruism, their sense of a bigger world than just results. Um, now some some of them overcorrect that, and results are not their favorite thing to achieve. But for the most part, I think if we can tap into the value system that we cultivated in them, that we told them to have, um, if we can now help them harness that value system. Uh, to see a bigger world and a bigger picture uh, that, you know, binaryism doesn't work, you know, this or that, um, but there can be an end. Uh, and if we can help them understand the complexity of that, because sometimes I, I think today they're still a little bit in that oversimplified idealistic state of I can have it all. But I think as we, as they mature through their, through their careers in the next 10 years, if we can harness that sense of a bigger world in them, they'll do phenomenal things. Well, this is also the first time we've had, I think it's five generations working at the same time. So to your point, the Gen Z, the millennials, the boomers, you know, leadership styles are very different. And so bringing those together in companies where we're really pushing for diversity and, and in my mind, and, and as many guests have said on this, on this podcast, diversity is not just men and women, it's thinking styles, it's generation, it's language, it's disabilities. It's everything. I mean, it's just diversity of thought, right? And so as we push for more diversity, 
How do you think leadership will have to reshape itself because of that when you start to have very different kinds of styles coming together? So what's interesting about that, Tiffany, uh, is that research would bear out that age or, or generational differences are not are not typically a greater source of diversity. I wrote an article a bunch of years ago uh, that started out with entitled, not hardworking, lazy, feedback, you know, feedback over a bunch of words. And I said, these sound like the words we all used to describe millennials, right? Well, those words opened up a 1969 Life Magazine article about boomers. So I don't know that the differences among the generations, given where, the, I, I think the difference is maturity levels, but I think when boomers were the age of the millennials, when millennials were the ages of, the Zers, when Xers were the ages of the Boomers, uh, or Boomers were the ages of the Xers, I think they had they were not that dissimilar in their altruism, in their idealism, in their in their ambitions, in their you know, you know because I think it's a stage of life issue. Now having people at that many different stages of life and what that maturity affords, or what the, that freedom affords, or what those obligations afford, that's a source of diversity. But just because you are that age doesn't necessarily make it a source of diversity. Now, I do think that, you know, just just like research has proven that when men and women lead together, uh, it's a far performance is they far outperform organizations that don't have gender diversity. I think the same is true with racial diversity. The same is true for uh, age diversity, um, that when you can blend the different perspectives and truly have diversity of thought, to use your words, because that's the key. I sat on a in an executive team meeting with a, a client who uh, was led by a woman, and on the team were multiple races, multiple sexual orientations, multiple genders. Um, uh, it looked like a, a mosaic of the UN, and they prided themselves on the diversity uh, of the organization as a as a demographic. And after two hours, I said, I hate I hate to tell you this, but there's not an ounce of diversity in this room. And of course, they were shocked. I said. Every time we reached a conflict, someone said, let's take it offline. Every time there was a, a point of view, it's bandwagon into, into agreement with no dissent. I said, you may look different from each other, but you are far more alike than you are different. And if you really want diversity of thought, uh, you didn't select for that. You selected for diversity of appearance. Um, and it was painful feedback for them to get, but they, they knew it was true that the richness of diversity uh, didn't exist the way they wanted it to. I think too often organizations believe that a diverse complexion leads to a diverse level of thinking. And while that might work out sometimes, uh, one is not necessarily always a cause of the other. And if you really want true diversity of thought, uh, that's one outcome, diversity of, of perspectives, diversity of values. But if you want diversity of complexion, you can have that. It doesn't necessarily always get you the, the other one though. And so what if you're somebody who's, you know, trying to move up the leadership ladder and knowing that you have all these things you now have to navigate, if you will, how do you start to lean into kind of flexing that leadership muscle across those, you know, four things, right? Choice, context, breadth, and connection, right? How do you start to lean into that? And and if you said, look, I one of the first things you said, and you also say in your TED Talk is... It, it's that you didn't exert the power you may have naturally already gained or that you now have. And so some of it is I'm not exerting it because I'm not confident to do it. Some of it is I have this imposter syndrome, right, where I don't think I deserve the power or the role. And yep. and another, it could be other things. So, so what are the ways in which people can lean into 
uh, you know, maturing into the level of power they may already have? It's a great question, Tiffany. I think there's some really basic things you can do. Um, the, one of the first muscles uh, that undergirds those those capabilities is, do you know how others experience you? Do you have a really good sense for how far apart or not your impact and your intentions are? And if you don't, go ask. Find some set of people you can trust who can watch you in action and ask them how they experience you. Ask them how a certain um, piece of work or a certain statement you made or a certain way you participated in a meeting or a presentation you gave or some some exertion of your influence, how it was truly received. Um, for context, you know, be asking questions about your industry. Be watching the trends on the horizon. Wonder about what, rather than being frustrated about the way things are done in your particular department or, or geography or region, ask why, why they're that way. You know, cross borders. You can build your breadth by simply going to other departments. Go to the departments where people rely on you, where, where part of your work is used for something else, and go ask them how helpful you're being or not. Go ask them if there's something they wish you did differently. Go learn about what how other people in other parts of your organization um, see your department or, or how, how they do their work. Um, for choice, get involved in task forces. Find out where certain decisions are made, where certain resources are allocated, and get involved and learn that decision-making is complicated. You know, There's a certain amount of data, a certain amount of intuition, a certain amount of other people. And begin to figure out what your choice-making apparatus needs to be. And of course, connection is, you know, make sure people know that you care about their success. Do what you have to do as you build your, cultivate your network of stakeholders within your organization and outside of it to let people know you're committed to their success. Don't just, you know, take the business card or do the proverbial, yeah, let's have coffee, let's talk, you know, but that's all. But really build a cadre of relationships where you can genuinely contribute to the success of others and, 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 and make sure you enjoy that. If you don't enjoy helping other people succeed, um, your leadership influence will be short-lived. Well, you have other people too that are entrepreneurs that that kind of leadership will be short-lived, right? You have a great idea, you start a company and then you kind of hit that Peter principle, right? I've raised the level of my incompetence and it's maybe time for an entrepreneur or a leader of a particular group to step aside and say, you know, I, I'm just not right to lead this business, especially around... Um, leaders in transition, right? Both organizationally and as a leader themselves. And what what are the signs that it might be time to take on a new role or pass the baton? You know that you're just not the right leader for the for the future growth of the business. Yeah, it's a great question, Tiffany. I think f- founderism can be a very dangerous disease, especially in the earlier earlier years of mature of maturing for an organization. I think there's a couple of signs that will would give would give it away. First of all, if people are never telling you um, that you're wrong, if you're never being given ideas different than your own, if you, if you have a lot of people who mysteriously agree with everything you say, that's a dangerous sign that you're either either you become stale or they're afraid of you. Um, if your organization, you know, if there's if you're if you're seeing the signs of being the classic, you know. Picket, you're a fifty million dollar company trapped in the body of a ten million dollar organization. You know where you've grown, but you haven't scaled, and you can hear the seams ripping, and you can hear you know confusion over priorities, or you can hear the fact that no matter how many times you've articulated a strategy, people still demonstrate confusion over it. That you have relied too much on yourself. You rely, you've made yourself too centric to the story, and you've become a very hub and spoke leader where everything is reliant on you. All decision pathways lead to you. Those are all signs 
that you haven't matured the leadership of the organization, whether or not you should be in that role or not. You haven't built it underneath you. Um, but typically, um, you know, when there's a staleness or a stuckness or a complacency in the organization, that's definitely a time where you've lost your edge or the organization stopped trusting you. Yeah. And I, but I think it's hard, right? I mean, this kind of founderism, I see it happen often where startups have a really great idea. They start to hire people. Uh, and unless they're really intentional of hiring the right kind of people, they understand their culture, their onboarding is on point, right? All the things we've been talking about, the training is right. You know, the teams are diverse thinking. I mean, that's a lot of moving parts uh, to make work. And, and even if you're a founder in a startup, a mid-sized company, an enterprise, or just a, uh, you know, a team within a very large company, or you have a team of three people, like those things are very complicated to get to work uh, in harmony. And so when one thing is off or two things are off, I'm guessing it starts to really impact your ability to be an effective leader. It's it's so true. And that's what people, when people call me, right, is when they start to see some of those symptoms appear. But the reality is that it's complicated because it because it's systemic, right? So you, there are lots of moving parts. Too often, leaders reach for the silver bullet. They jigger the org chart. They do new values. They run everybody through a training program. They they want some silver bullet answer to all the pain they're in, when they don't appreciate that much of the pain is systemic and it's been layered on. And you to, to fix it will require systemic solutions and integrated solutions. Um, and you're not going to fix it overnight. But too many leaders are either tired they've been there too long or they, they, they it's, they're over their depth, they're over their skis. And so they need to understand how to look at their situation systemically to understand what are the strategic forces, the cultural forces, the governance forces, the technological forces, the competitive forces, the, the human capability forces, what are the different aspects of what might be contributing to the ditch they feel like they're in and solve it accordingly. Um, and for many leaders that is exhausting because they haven't been trained to do it. Well, this has been really fantastic. I mean, I think that people, I think even myself included, we all want to sort of bring our best selves to work, uh, be a great teammate and peer and potentially a manager and even, you know, hire in the org a leader. Um, but we all want to make sure that we do it in a way that we wake up every day and we can look ourselves in the mirror and feel like we're adding value to people's lives. And we're not diminishing their ability to grow as well. And, and I think that it takes people investing in themselves, whether it's listening to podcasts like this, reading books, reading your book, rising to power, like, you know, whatever it might be, really investing in yourself, especially if you're trying to go down this leadership path, because I don't think it happens accidentally. I think you have to work at it every, every minute, every day, every month, every year, every, you know, but that's my opinion. I, I and I couldn't agree more, Tiffany. I think self development is, but but self development needs to be a group activity, right? You can't you can't we're 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 physiologically designed not to be able to see our own faces for a reason. I think the eyes of others on us, the eyes of others watching us and truly seeing us, not just watching us, but and knowing us and telling us what they know and what they see. You, we need others. We cannot form in isolation. We cannot develop and grow as individuals individually. And so if you have not got a community of people or trusted people around you who are telling you the truth, who are not just telling you what you want to hear or telling you how great you are. And in those down moments when you feel discouraged, aren't just saying, no, you'll be fine, um, but are honest enough and care about you enough to say, well, you feel down because you, you didn't put enough effort in it and you sucked. Now, now fix it. 
Um, if, you, if you haven't got people routinely in your face telling you the truth about where you're, gr where you're great, but where you're not and where you could be better, um, you should worry. You should really worry that you have not cultivated a community of people around you who want to go on that journey with you and, and, and a community of people that you're contributing to as well, whose development you are helping to curate, whose story you're helping to narrate, right? We need narrators of our stories. We're, we're not solo characters. Um, and if you haven't cultivated that, my gosh, that should be start tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, with that sort of coming to the end of this fantastic podcast, you know, what's next for people sort of in 2019, uh, you know, it's the beginning of the year. What, what are they going to do? And, and more importantly, you know, what are you watching for 2019? So um, I, uh, I'm very excited about some new research. Um, we have just, the ink is still drying on, that we conducted. So our 10-year database is now, what was now our 15-year database. We have 3,300 interviews. And we, we did a deep dive study on honesty, on what it is that makes people honest or lie or withhold the truth within organizations. We've known and had a hunch for a long time that it's not just a matter of individual character, that there are in fact systemic forces that influence whether or not people will lie or tell the truth. And we now have isolated um, several that clearly can predict uh, whether or not people are gonna, uh, will be honest or not. And so I'm very excited about um, uh, for 2019, being able to bring that to the world because um, integrity and wholeness and organizations being able to thrive uh, by being honest about who they are is that's how I spent my career. So now after this many years to actually have proof that there are ways to do it well uh, is very exciting for me. Well, excellent. Well, Ron, this has been really fantastic. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Um, I love that, that you were willing to let me take it wherever I wanted to. And I love that you, uh, um, you know, laughed on the robots. So with the ending I'm going to end on that. Robots being honest. Since honest <laughs> is your next sort of focus area and what the research you've done, uh, you you were bullish on it. So let's end with that. That was fun. You know, from what I love about it is, uh, so it was it was robot. It was AI, it was machine intelligence that actually we did our research with. We didn't go the academic route of here's a hypothesis, go prove what I, that I'm right. We said let the let the AI tell us, you know, what they what it sees. Um, and the interesting thing about robots is they have no dog in the hunt, right? There's no reason for them to misinterpret the facts. They can recognize and spot patterns uh, that we can't see humanly because our biases, our perceptions, our own insecurities, our 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 self perceptions are all, you know, they're fakakta. I mean, they're they're jumbled up a little bit. Well, robots don't have those. They don't live with those same things. Now, yes, there's certainly new research that says that those programming the robots do insert their biases, right? So in selection processes, you, you see some of that, but I think we can work that out. We can still still allow artificial intelligence to tell us what it sees. And we may not like what it says, but it's far more likely to be telling us things that are true and accurate than uh, other humans are. So I, I can't wait to see how we learn to collaborate with robots, I, I think there's, there's, there are there are things you can never replace in humanity in terms of passion and artistry and empathy, and our our love and care for one another. But I think in combination with the intelligence that robots can bring, I think we'll be, we'll be a great team. I agree. Well, once again, Ron, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, before we let you go, maybe you can let the listeners know how they can keep up with with your research and your writing and where they can find uh, find you easily. 
I'd love to keep uh, in touch and keep chatting. Uh, Navalent.com, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com is our website. You can find our great videos there. We have a free ebook for you on leading transformation called at navalent.com slash transformation. So come check that out. We've got uh, a great quarterly magazine you can sign up for. We've got a regular blog and post. I'm at Twitter at at Ron Carucci, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So I'd love to keep chatting. Great. Thank you so much, Ron. Have a great rest of your day. And we will look forward to hearing from you soon. Tiffany, thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. That was so much fun talking to Ron. I love having a conversation about leadership. I often get asked the question, you know, I'm trying to move in my career. I want to get more responsibility and take on some management responsibilities, but I don't really know where to begin. And I think the way Ron sort of shaped out influence and thinking about training and self-development and understanding diversity, but more importantly, really just those four things that the leaders he has researched have done to be successful, which was the choice, the context, the breadth, and the connection between people and how you actually position yourself for success. I look forward to seeing his research come out later in the year around honesty and how we need to play that card uh, as it relates to leadership. I think trust is the new currency in so much of business. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. I hope you found the conversation with Ron inspiring, especially if you're looking to increase your capabilities around leadership. So thank you for spending this time with me. Please make sure to subscribe, leave some feedback, share with friends, and I'll look forward to having you back next time. Thanks again. Have a great day. 